Good morning and uh, welcome again to our Sunday online service. Uh, we thank you for joining us. Um, it's a pleasure to be with you today, um, especially on this Lord's Day um, as we uh, commemorate and um, reflect on the resurrection of our Lord uh, Jesus Christ. And it's, a, it's just a blessing to be with you today and to share with you. Um, I'm going to be sharing from Nehemiah 13 verses 1 to 14. Um, I'm going to read and pray and get straight into it. Uh, so I'll, I'll give you a moment to turn there, um, and then I will uh, read. Okay, so Nehemiah 13, 1 to 14. Uh, and the, word, the Lord of the Word says, the, Lord, the Word of the Lord says, <laughs> On that day... They read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, and, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all of those, all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house um, of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels and the tithes of grain, wine and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers and gatekeepers and the contributions of the priest, for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem, and then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padeah of the Levites. And as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zacho, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O oh my God concerning this and do not wipe out my deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. This is the word of the Lord. Um, let's take a moment to pray. Um, immortal, invisible, God only wise, in light inaccessible, hid from our eyes, most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days, Almighty, victorious, thy great name we praise. Heavenly Father, we give you uh, all glory because you are God. Um, though we cannot see you, uh, 
you see us um, and you are with us. And I just pray that you would be with us today in the sharing of your word. Uh, would you bless me as the speaker and your people as the hearers, um, that your people might be uh, encouraged and admonished to glorify you and to serve you better, Lord. Uh, would you aid me, Lord? Would you give me unction as I uh, speak to your people? Um, and Lord, would you uh, cause your people um, to be holy? Um, in Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, the general narrative of our text today uh, takes place after the dedication uh, of chapter 12, um, which we looked at last week. Um, and it focuses on uh, two key events. Um, in verses 1 to 3, there seems to be uh, another public reading of the law among the people. And uh, it perhaps may be a periodical reading. Um, and there they find the instruction to have no Ammonites or Moabites to gather with them in the assembly or the ecclesia uh, of God because of historically bad treatment. Uh, the people in the hearing then separate themselves from all foreigners. The scene then shifts uh, and we're told that Nehemiah returned to Babylon, uh, presumably after the dedication of the wall, to serve King Artaxerxes. He then returns to the holy city and he finds that there's been misuse of the temple and the obstruction of temple service because of Tobiah, who we met before in the book of Nehemiah. Um, and there is neglect of the temple by the Levites and potentially by the people. So he implements uh, reforms um, in order to restore um, order to the temple worship. So as we look at our text today, the key idea that we're really wanting to think about um, is that God's covenant people must guard its distinctiveness as God's holy people from compromise and the temptation to assimilate with surrounding cultures. Now when we read verse uh, 1 to 3, uh, this may or may not make you feel uncomfortable, uh, but there is this, this exclusive kind of command that a particular foreign group uh, should never enter the assembly or the gathering of God's people. And we originally find this command in Deuteronomy 23, 3 to 6, which says, No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of them may ever, oh, sorry, may enter the assembly of, of the Lord forever, because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you, because the Lord your God loved you. You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days forever. Now, we may view this as quite harsh and excluding because it seems almost incompatible with the inclusive nature of the Christianity that we know and that we're familiar with. We are used to the idea that all nations and all people from all ethnic backgrounds can freely partake in God the Father through uh, the Lord Jesus. But this verse sounds quite ostracizing and discriminatory, uh, especially in our age where discrimination of any kind of group in any way is not permissible uh, and will certainly grant you um, a virtual mob. Now, 
we must consider that this command is not based on a racist or xenophobic ethos, but has more to do with the holiness and separateness of God's people and protection from the infiltration of the surrounding cultures. The whole biblical framework is geared towards the inclusion of all nations being gathered to God. So beginning at Genesis 1, in, or Genesis 11, the nations are scattered because they are opposed to God um, at the Tower of Babel. But in Genesis 12, God makes a promise to a man called Abraham uh, that through him, all nations of the earth will be blessed. All families of the earth will be blessed. And this promise is then bought and realized in Christ Jesus. And in Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, those nations that were scattered um, are now gathered again together, uh, not in opposition to God, but gathered to unite with God. But in relation to Israel, foreigners are not merely neutral entities that should freely live among the people of God. These nations do not come empty-handed, but they bring with them their cultures. And these cultures do not contain only ethnic or regional values, but embedded in every culture, there is a principle and practice of worship from which its values and beliefs come from. Henry Van Til states, culture is religion externalized. So if, people, if the people of God have been called to be holy and set apart, there must be a wariness against those cultures joining in the worship of the people of God. Now this command does not mean that uh, Ammonites and Moabites uh, cannot at all turn to the Lord. We look at someone like Ruth, who was a Moabite, who should have been excluded from the people of God, but comes to Israel and becomes the great-grandmother of Israel's greatest king, barring the Lord Jesus, King David. But Ruth does not come to Israel as a Moabite and stay a Moabite. She says to Naomi in Ruth 1.16, uh, Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. So the place of the foreigner is not to come into the people of God and retain their previous culture, but they must be conformed to the truth of the God of Israel. But again, generally, in the case of foreigners, there is this necessary principle that other cultures are to be excluded and separate from God's people because they pose a threat to God's covenant community. And in this case mentioned here, the, um, in verse 1 to 3, the Ammonites and Moabites were persistently aggressive towards God's people, both passively in that they did not meet the people of God with bread and water. You could say that's a sin of omission. And actively, the sin of commission, in that they hired Balaam against Israel to curse them. Uh, for your further reading, this, this story is found in Numbers 22 to 25, um, where the people of Israel are very close to entering the promised land, and Balak, the king of Moab, sees Israel and hires Balaam to curse them uh, in order to destroy them. Balaam uh, then goes to utter curses against Israel, but when he goes to speak, uh, he cannot speak those curses, but instead can only speak blessings over God's people. So they were not able to, the Moabites were not able to prevail against the people of Israel. However, what is not mentioned here, but is still mentioned in the story and reflects this principle of separation, 
is that even after Balaam was not able to utter curses over the people of God, he was still able to cause the people of God to stumble by having Moabite women seduce the men of Israel so that they might eat food uh, sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality, which resulted in God having to execute judgment um, on Israel in a plague that killed 24,000 Israelites. And that brings to our attention that intermingling with nations that are hostile to God causes compromise in such a way that ends in um, our ruin and estrangement from God. And we see this shown in our text today uh, because this story is somewhat paralleled by Tobiah in the rest of our, uh, in the rest of our text. Tobiah parallels the Ammonites and Moabites firstly because he himself is an Ammonite. Um, we learn this in chapter 4 verse 3. Um, and he is not to be included in the people of God. He, along with Sambala, if you remember, um, sharing this persistent and direct hostility toward God's people. Um, in chapter 4, he mocks the building of the wall and plots to fight against Israel in order to cause confusion. Tobiah also mirrors that, um, that the, the Ammonites and Moabites in the story of Numbers, because in Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 12, he hires Shelemiah, or Shemaiah, sorry, the prophet, to prophesy and speak falsely to Nehemiah in quite a similar way that Balaam is hired um, by Balak to curse God's people. Uh, the Hebrew word uh, used for hired is the same word. We also see Tobias' opposition uh, through more subtle means um, in that he has a strong foothold in the people of God because he is very closely tied to them. Um, after the wall is completed, Nehemiah reports in chapter 6, uh, 17 to 18, um, that Moreover, in the days of the nobles of Judah, um, sorry, moreover, in those days, uh, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, um, because he was the son-in-law of, son of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, and his son Jehohanan had taken the daughter of Meshullam, the son of Berechiah, to, um, as his wife. So an enemy of God who should be excluded from the temple, one who uh, opposes the progression of Israel after they return from exile, has individuals bound to him by oath, and he has family ties in God's people, even though he is a foreigner. And these family ties are not just with ordinary people, we find, because he is related to Eliashib, um, but they are with people who hold crucial and important roles in leading national worship and keeping the, faith, the people faithful to God. So when Nehemiah returns, he finds that Eliashib, the priest in the temple, has prepared the storage chamber for Tobiah, this enemy of God. Now this storage chamber is incredibly important because it holds what is needed for daily temple worship and sacrifices. And it also holds the tithes that are given so the priests, Levites, and singers can focus on the work of the Lord uh, without having to worry about income. But Tobiah's occupying of the room stops the worship and hinders the spiritual life of the nation. The work of the temple is obsolete without the vessels and the grain and the frankincense. 
this would be similar to if newspaper boys didn't have any newspapers. Um, effectively, they have no job. And because they're out of a job, uh, they are out of an income. Um, and this may be, and in, in, in this case, in our chapter, it may be because um, uh, there is nowhere to store, store the tithes because um, Tobiah is in the storage room, or because the people realize that no temple work is going on, um, so they stop giving tithes. As a result, they left the work of the temple and returned to their day jobs in order to provide for themselves. Now, all of this effectively um, shows that the people and the priesthood have broken the firm covenant that was made in chapter 10. A key part of the covenant is its last phrase, we will not neglect the house of God. But Nehemiah returns and has to ask in verse 11, why is the house of God forsaken? Why is it neglected? Now, despite Tobiah's hostility against God's people, another factor we must consider is Eliashib's compromise and accommodation. As the one in charge of the temple chambers, it was up to him to guard from anything strange or foreign from entering and profaning the temple. Yet he somehow made the error of accommodating Tobiah, even though he is not supposed to be in the temple at all, and he opposes Israel. This should remind us of Adam in the garden. The Garden of Eden um, is not merely a garden, but a temple garden, a unique place where God met with his people in relationship. This is why any other temple, uh, whether it be the tabernacle or tent of meeting or Solomon's temple, um, or even at the end um, in Revelations 21 and 22, they always include imagery uh, of plants and fruits um, and garden imagery. And just as the temple, or just as the garden was a temple, Adam then was a priest who is called by God to keep and guard the temple and remove from it that which is strange and foreign, namely the serpent. Eliashib's compromise and inability to remove foreign and strange things from the temple causes this estrangement of God's people from their proper relationship with him and remove their ability to worship God adequately, just like Adam's failure. So we must turn or return to this principle that God's people must be separate, distinct, and guarded against surrounding and hostile cultures that may entice us into assimilation and accommodation. And we must be aware that assimilation and accommodation and compromising with uh, other cultures outside Christ will almost always have adverse effects on our lives and our calling as God's holy people. I do not believe we can fully embrace Christ and embrace other cultures with their principle and practice of worship. Now, I, I reiterate that I'm not speaking of culture in its ethnic sense. The Lord is glorified in the diverse nature of his people as he gathers them from the nations. Uh, the Christian faith is unique precisely because it shows far more cultural diversity than any other faith because it is universal and not merely regional. But what I speak of refers to the order of a culture. 
Um, I quote Henry Van Til, who says, Every social order rests on a creed, a concept of life and society, and represents religion in action. Every social order has an implicit creed, and this creed defines the order and informs it. So in other words, at the core of every culture or cultural movement, there lies a, a, a belief system um, or a story that governs it. And we step into dangerous territory when we are not aware that the surrounding culture and its creed and story is attempting to accommodate itself um, within us in such a way that will affect the very nature of our worship to, to our God. If we are not living in and embodying and embracing the story of the Bible as the very starting place for all of life and our thinking and how we understand the world, then some other story will take its place. That vacuum will always be filled. And it will always be filled because the world is not neutral. Neutrality is a myth. An example of this relates to the question that Rich T posed last week uh, of what we consider sacred or secular, uh, with, with the deeper question being, are there areas of my life that I believe God is not interested in? In light of the principle of separation and the distinction of God's people um, and the distinction that they're meant to have, I propose that the sacred and secular framework is itself a foreign cultural object that in the fashion of Eliashib we may have accommodated to live um, within our space of worship. And this comes from the, the, the practice and principle of the Enlightenment culture and creed, that scientific and factual knowledge is to be universally accepted as neutral, and all other kinds of truth or other kinds of knowledge, especially knowledge of God, is relegated from public authoritative truth to the lower realm of private preference or taste. This, over time, reflects a framework where, on the one hand, you have neutral truth that exists in the real world that we might call real life and practical, and on the other hand, you have spiritual taste that is not practical, um, but lives in subjection to that neutral truth. And this causes us to compartmentalize life into, well, here's my spiritual box for God um, when I have um, to think about spiritual things, but then the boxes for education and what I do for work and family and parenting and money and time and entertainment and romantic choices and diet and justice and science and culture, uh, these things exist in the real world where God has no real bearing on the things that stand outside of that spiritual box that God is relegated to. But this is not the biblical way of thinking, meaning that it is the wrong way of thinking. It is an Ammonite or a Moabite in the assembly of God. It is foreign. And this speaks to how compromising with the surrounding culture affects worship, because what this framework has done to us is that it's minimized the lordship of Christ to sections of our lives, of our lives rather than having all of Christ for all of life. This could be a strong reason why we listen to sermons and go away thinking, ah, this is impractical. Because the word of God only exists in our spiritual box that we only open on Sundays. And so we think it doesn't apply to the real world or um, to our real lives. This is why I occasionally hear Christians say, I, I'm a Christian, but I've got to be real. 
which is essentially saying that God and the Bible are sub-real. They are a lesser form of real. As if God has nothing to say about our lives and real life issues and cannot speak but on Sundays. As if God or the idea of God in what we call real life is like a child among adults. He should not be seen or heard when big people are speaking. This is precisely the attitude of the surrounding culture, but it's embedded itself into our worship. But this is not the revelation of God. God's revelation tells us that the surrounding culture is not neutral. Greg Barnson states, Neutrality is in actuality veiled agnosticism or unbelief, a failure to walk in Christ, an obscuring of Christian commitment and distinctives, a suppression of the truth. This is reflected in Romans 1.19 to 22, which says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, that is plain to unbelievers, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him because they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. The word of God by his spirit has made us wise unto salvation. So why should the holy people of God accommodate ways of thinking that are futile, dark, and foolish according to the principle of foreign cultures that oppose God and not according to Christ? If scripture has told us that they suppress the truth and thus relegate God from all realms of life, why do we follow suit? God's revelation tells us that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. God's revelation tells us that all things are held together by the word of Christ's power. In Christ, we live and move and have our being, our whole being. Psalm 24 tells us that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the, the world and they that dwell therein. Uh, Abraham Kuyper states in his most famous uh, uh, quote, There is not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. And this is especially true when we think about the world as it is today, or even the world and workings of our own personal lives. He is Lord over it, no matter how much the surrounding culture denies it, because God's revelation has told us that they know it. <laughs> they know that he's Lord over it, but they suppress it. Therefore, Christian cultural engagement means Jesus is Lord over everything in the world. It does not mean Jesus and everything or anything that the world might be saying 
just now. All of life is his. The culture will not believe this, but we certainly do. There are no compartments of life over which Christ is not the Lord. There is no space even where science or sociology takes its place independent of his revelation. And so for us, there isn't to be this idea that there are Christian things and then there is real life. No, life in Christ is the only true real life and there is no sufficient alternative no matter how attractive or empirically plausible. And outside of him, there is not this sense of neutrality, but there is opposition to God. I quote Greg Barnson again, who says, Those who wish to gain dignity in the eyes of the world's intellectuals by wearing the badge of neutrality only do so at the expense of refusing to be set apart by God's truth. God is to be in it all. Christ is in it all. Our faith is not out of touch or impractical because the earth is the Lord's and so there is absolutely nothing beyond his touch because everything is his. And so all of Christ must pervade all of life. That is every nook and every cranny. Like Eliashib, we cannot compromise by accommodating the story of the world or integrating the story of the world with the story of God's revelation of himself. We are a chosen race, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. We are a royal priesthood, meaning that we are temple guardians and must guard against compromising our thinking to accommodate the surrounding culture. Um, another realm where we must apply this necessary principle of separation is our relationship to unbelievers uh, as we engage with them, uh, whether through our fellowship, our friendships, or even romantic relationships. In our fellowship, the voice of the unbeliever should not be heard in a way that is, that is contributive to our worship um, or outreach precisely because they do not worship our God and are not part of our Lord's mission. When we engage in church life and community or we're doing outreach in the many ways that our church does here at Ecclesia, we must be clear about who is in our fellowship and who is not in order that there is a clear line for all to see and understand. And when there is an unbeliever present, it is not our job to make them feel at ease with suppressing the truth of God that they know even though they deny it. Yet we must be hospitable and welcome to the, welcoming to the unbeliever, but participation should only be reserved for those who worship God. Our culture is in a place where it likes to blur the lines um, and uh, uh, it repudiates any kind of boundaries. Um, in kind of the fashion of Satan, it, it is almost like, um, uh, did God really say, you have to question everything because we're not sure about boundaries. Boundaries are arbitrary. But in, 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 in God's holy nation, amongst his people, uh, lines must be drawn and there must, no, there must be no confusion. Um, 
or the unbeliever may treat what we call holy as profane. Tobiah did not mind um, displacing the worship elements of the holy temple because it was not holy to him and his God was not being worshipped. We must avoid letting just anyone join in God's holy mission to us as a church. That is anyone who is not willing to put off their previous cultural um, or their their previous principle and practice of worship and culture. In our friendships with unbelievers, um, it is not at all wrong to have unbelieving friends. Make that clear. But we are to be in their lives, uh, genuinely loving them deeply, displaying the love of Christ. But we also must be aware of the influence they may have on us. It must be known that we are God's distinct people, and the temptation to hide that or compromise that may indicate an influence on you that you perhaps may not suspect or want to admit. The truth is, it will not always be easy to keep unbelieving friends when you are living in the calling of the distinct people of God, not because we're annoying religious people, but because we are distinct. In romantic relationships, I would be far more cautious Rich T. mentioned a few weeks ago that those who are saved from the wrath of God cannot then unite themselves with those under the wrath of God, those who the Bible describes as enemies of God. We who are alive cannot marry the dead, even when there is a temptation to think of that person as neutral. According to God's revelation, they are not neutral, they are dead in sin. Those situations may feel like an unjust uh, uh, romantic love affair like West Side Story. But the rejection of Christ's lordship, even over your uh, romantic relationships, leads to compromise of which there will be dire consequences. And these things are not easy to do, uh, to readdress our living, our thinking, our fellowship and personal relationships is not easy because there is a tempting comfort in integrating with the world. We often don't want the loneliness of being distinct because we desire to be relevant or accepted. We desire to be in the in-group. But Christian living and Christian engagement um, with the surrounding culture is not like a gin and tonic. Uh, It is more like water and oil. We are not to be conformed to this world, even though we live in it, but we are to be transformed by the renewal of our minds, that by testing we may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. God's word here says boundaries are okay. We can make boundaries. And we get a a, a picture of how to do this, how to live separately, how to live distinctly, Um, and where we have accommodated, uh, we get a picture of how to do this in how Nehemiah responds to the misuse and neglect of the temple. His response is twofold. One, to remove, and two, to replace. Firstly, though not Nehemiah specifically, the people, after hearing God's word, 
separated or removed from themselves those of foreign descent. Nehemiah removes that which is strange and foreign from the temple. And in righteous anger, he throws out Tobiah's belongings and has the temple cleansed from that which is profane. And he removes Eliashib from being the appointed priest over the storage chamber. Here, we are reminded of the Lord Jesus, the second Adam, the true temple guardian, who was not content that the temple should contain that which is foreign or strange, but drove out the evil in the temple by saying, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of thieves. He did not accommodate. He flipped tables. We might take application for this from Colossians 3. <clears throat> where we are told to put off and put away the old self, remove the old self. Identify and remove that which is profane from inside of you, because you are the Lord's temple. You are the temple guardian. But this can only be done with the help of the blessed Holy Spirit. And this may have to be done with the zeal and fervor of Nehemiah, Again, he said he was angry. His response seems quite violent. And our Lord Jesus says in Matthew 5, 29 to 30, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members, and your whole body go into hell. Thus Nehemiah removed and he replaced. Secondly, Nehemiah replaces. After removing Tobiah's furniture, he brought back the grain, the frankincense, and the vessels of the house of God. Where the people stopped giving, Nehemiah readied the priest to receive tithes from all of Judah in verses 11 to 12. He also replaced those who were in charge over the storage chamber, um, so the job was done effectively in verse 13. The work of purifying and cleansing is not merely a matter of removal. If you remove without replacing, you create a vacuum that something else will fill. We cannot give room for neutral, God-opposing culture to occupy. So as we remove and put off the old self, we must replace it with this new self. And this new self, Colossians 3.17 tells us, does this. And whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Some things, a few things in the name of the Lord Jesus, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father. We are also to set our minds on the things that are above, as it says in Colossians 3.2. And in order to do this, we must learn to think biblically about everything. There is nothing under the heavens that the truth of God is independent of. 
we need to realize that we have all of Christ for all of life. For from his fullness we receive grace upon grace for all of life. So my brothers and sisters, the beloved of the Lord, the beloved of the Lord Jesus, I admonish you to be the distinct people of God whom he has called and drafted into his mission. The Lord Jesus says to us in Matthew 5, 13 to 16, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its, its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in perfect. Uh, we come before you in the midst of a culture that is teaching us how to think. Uh, but your word shows us that this culture um, is not yours. It's not of you. Um, it is not holy, but it is profane. Um, and there are instances where we let the culture dictate to us our lives. But Lord, your word says that we are to offer up ourselves to you, our whole bodies, as a living sacrifice. Um, not to the world, and not partly to the world and partly to you, or partly to some way of thinking and partly to the biblical way of thinking. It's all to you. But Lord, we need your help through your Holy Spirit. Would you fill us all with your Holy Spirit and renew our minds that we might be the holy people of God, called to your mission, to be a light to the nations, to draw people, to put down that which is profane, and to pick up the truth of God that is life-changing, not only spiritually changing, but all of life changing, not just our compartments, but the whole of life in every sense, in every regard. Give us the boldness, Lord, to live in this world, not as assimilators, not as just like the world, not like gin and tonic, Lord. But may we be separate, not to draw boundaries for drawing boundaries' sake, but because you are holy and you have called your people to be holy. Would you help us, Lord? Because we cannot do it on our own. We cannot do it by ourselves. Lord, we need you to do this for us and in us. So would you do your perfect work, Lord? In Jesus' name, amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.